probably should pray together after that. All right. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your, your word, we, uh, we come asking for revelation. We ask for direction. We ask for a keen sense of your presence. And uh, as we think about just the beauty of this season of coming together to celebrate uh, the gift that you, our Father, gave to us above all other gifts, the gift of your own Son, and that he would become a ransom for us, that he, he would set our worth and our value, and that he said that his life was worth our life, and our life was worth his life. Uh, I don't know anyone else who would do that for me, or who would value me in that way. And so, Lord, as we come uh, to look at the idea of worship, and when Jesus is the focus and the object of our worship, what it does to our lives, we ask that by your Spirit you would empower us to become those that the Father is looking for, the worshipers in spirit and in truth. And uh, we, seek, we seek that out now in the name of Jesus. And we do call forth that uh, any distracting, hindering spirits, any evil, unclean spirits, I call you to attention and I command that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you leave our presence. You cannot harass, hinder, or in any way form an obstacle to the words that the Scripture has for us this morning or that God has for us this morning. And these things we speak in the name and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So I have a little scripture I'd like us to read out loud together. Um, it's just uh, four verses from Hebrews chapter 1. This series that I'm doing on worship, I'm just going to base it out of Hebrews. And we're kind of working backwards. Last week we started in chapter 8, we moved back to chapter 2, now we're all the way at chapter 1. So we're going to start at the very beginning of, of the letter to Hebrews. So I'd like you to read out loud with me God's Word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, this, this time that we have together is focused on the idea of worship, and the center of that worship is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that we looked at last week, just to either refresh your memory or perhaps you weren't here, but to, to go over this, this aspect of what Jesus is doing right now in heaven. The writer to the Hebrews makes it clear that number one, that where Jesus has placed his role and his, his office and where he's doing what he's doing now in heaven is that he is the worship leader of heaven. As a matter of fact, there's a, a very specific Greek word used to describe the ministry of Jesus right now, and that word is the word liturgist, or it is the one who is 
the presenter or the one who is leading the worship service in the heavenly temple. Hebrews makes it clear that there is a genuine temple of which the earthly temple was but a copy. That there is a heavenly altar of which the earthly one was but a copy. There is a genuine temple of God where the Father is the center of worship and praise and glory, and Jesus leads those praises. Jesus is never bored, it seems, by any kind of worship of his Father. He delights in it. He rejoices in it. And the whole purpose of his coming here to earth, first born in a manger, born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, living a perfectly sinless life, dying a substitutionary and sacrificial death, rising again from the dead because sin had no control over him and death couldn't contain him, and ascending into heaven at the right hand of the Father, he now leads the worship service of heaven, and he fulfills what the prophet Isaiah says, is that he stands before the Father and he presents you and me. The very first thing that he says in the worship service of heaven, the first thing he says is he says, Father, here I am. And then he looks, he scans over you and me as we worship together. And he runs his hand over us all. And he says, and here are the children that you have given me. This is the very first thing that the worship leader, Jesus, does in heaven is he introduces you as worshipers, as children, as related to the Father. He primarily sees you not just as the body of Christ or not just as the bride of Christ or not even as a building, a a church building, but he primarily sees you as brothers and sisters, children of the Most High God. And he presents you. So when you come into this service on a Sunday morning or whenever you come The Lord Jesus is already worshiping. He's already leading the worship, and he's in the heavenly temple. And when things go right here, and we do what we are called to do, there's a merging of the genuine heavenly temple with this copy here on earth. And Jesus moves about us very freely, and he calls out your name, and he says, here's Here's Gloria, the, ch- the daughter that you gave me. Here's Alvaro, the son that you gave me. This is what Jesus, the worship leader, does. He says, here are my brothers and here are my sisters, because primarily above everything else, you will never stand before God in a right relationship until you become a brother or a sister of Jesus. But when that happens, you are family. This is the primary thing that, that it's like a family reunion in the temple. Here am I, Jesus says, and the children that you have given me. And then it says that he expresses his worship in singing praises. There may be some of you that you sing horribly, and there are others of you that sing beautifully. I love to sit next to the ones who sing beautifully, because then they cover all of my gaps. You know, they, it's suddenly when you're sitting next to someone who sings beautifully, you can sing more beautifully than you've ever sung before. And so in some ways, whether you sing beautifully or not, if you know that Jesus is singing with you, he covers everything. He covers all your tunelessness. You know, he covers all the the places where you croaked or cracked. 
You know, he, he lifts you up. He sings next to you. And Zephaniah 3 says he sings over you. And then the third thing that he does in the worship service, it says that he teaches and he preaches the name of God. If you've been baptized, if you've ever been baptized, and you listen carefully to the baptismal words, we baptize you into the name of the Father, into the name of the Son, and into the name of the Holy Spirit. You now have died. That's why I like immersion instead of sprinkling. It's really hard to kill someone with sprinkling. They don't die, they just get wet. You know, but when you take them under the water and you leave them as long as I leave them, <laughs> you know, some, some have stayed minutes down there, and, uh, and, then they, and then they come out of the water and you've baptized them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and you put them into the water, and it symbolizes their death, the death of their old self, the death of their past, the death of everything that would weigh them down, and then you pull them out of the water, you see, and it symbolizes resurrection, that they've come out a new person in the name. Their name is no longer Mike. Their name is no longer what it was. Their name now is the name that God gives them. Many of us in this room have done the spiritual exercise of actually asking God, what's my new name? Because he has a new name for you when you're baptized into his name. Something new is about you. Paul says it this way, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what we symbolize when we baptize you into his name. And it says that Jesus then, right now, is is proclaiming, preaching, teaching what it means to be in the name of God. What it means for you, what it means for your identity, what it means for your purpose. All of this is going on. So the, the Lord Jesus is making an appeal to you even when you come to a service here on earth, he himself is using earthly agents, either prophetically or teachers or however he wants to use it, but he's speaking his appeal through earthly vessels. So that you may be thinking that you're resisting me when you resist the message, but you're actually resisting him. That's why I don't take it personally when you fall asleep. Because that, that means there's something spiritual going on with you that you're resisting the spirit. I'm funny. I'm entertaining. I can tell good stories. And if you fall asleep when I'm telling a good story, I know it's spiritual. <laughs> it's an unclean spirit that has gotten a hold of you and has taken you out so you can't hear what's being said because it's not about me. It's about the one who preaches in the, earthly, in the heavenly temple that invades the earthly temple. When you resist him, you're resisting the worship leader of heaven. You're not resisting me. It's funny that people can get mad at me or they get upset with me, but it's really, it's really not me they're upset with. It's really the worship leader of heaven they're upset with. And so as we look at this and you go, okay, Hebrews clearly, clearly states that right now, even though you and I are here in chairs, we're sitting or standing here in New City, we're actually being lifted up into the heavenly temple. More is going on here than meets the eye. That's why for many of you it's a trial to get here on a Sunday morning. 
is because the enemy knows that more is happening in the presence of God in a little church like ours than, than anywhere else in the world. Because wherever the heaven invades earth, earth then is close to heaven. And the people who are in that place begin to experience what is true of heaven. And what is true of heaven begins to be true of earth. Jesus is first and foremost our worship leader. But this passage that I read to you today also says that he's the object of our worship. He's the focus of our worship. If, it, if I could just get you to think with me a little bit about what does the word worship mean? It it's actually comes from an old English word that had to do with worth and ship. And then you kind of compress it down to worship. But the idea is that it's anything that you begin to believe is worth something to you, is worth adoration, is worthy of praise. It's anything that you believe has value, that the character of what you are, the object that you, you're, you're focusing on, to you, you're saying, this to me has worth or value. We worship many, many things. I worship my wife. I think she has tremendous value. As a matter of fact, the old English marriage ceremony said, with my body, I thee worship when you married someone. What are you saying by that? You're not saying that, I'm not saying that Lisa is God. I'm saying she has value. I'm saying that she is the most important person in my life. And so uh, anything that has to do with Lisa and anything that comes between what I value in her, I say no to. And I say yes to anything that lifts her up, anything that magnifies our relationship, anything that, that makes our relationship more special or makes it more um, uh, powerful in our lives or impactful in our lives. Anything that I value, I'm going to give stuff like time to, I'm going to give words to, I'm going to give heart to. Now, here's, here is what, uh, when Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote, he talked about both your identity and your purpose. If you've been born again, if you're a, a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christ follower, then Peter says this about us. Would you read this out loud? It says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. If you wonder what is your purpose, if you wonder what is, what is the assignment that God has given to you, it's right here. See, your assignment actually flows out of your identity. Your assignment flows out of your identity, out of who you are. You know, when you came out of that water and you, and you acknowledged, I am risen with Jesus, I am alive, I am, I am a, a new creation. Well, that new creation has form, it has substance, and it's, it's an identity. And this is why I love being a Christian probably more than, than, than anything else, is that every, everywhere else that you look, your behavior defines your identity. For example, if you lie, people call you a... See, your behavior becomes your identity. If you steal, what are you? You're called a thief, you see? If, you're, if you gossip, you're called a gossip. See, in most places, 
Your negative behavior then defines your identity. This is one of my, I just give a little soapbox here, not a big one, okay? I, I, just a little soapbox. Uh, but in the recovery movement, I, I think in some ways there has to be care that is given that you don't begin to contradict your scriptural identity with your AA identity. There are a lot of people that I, I, I love and that I minister to that they are so fixated on an identity from a behavior that they forget that that behavior does not define your identity. The only thing that defines your identity is your God. And when God defines you and he gives you an identity, it's not based on past behavior. It's based on who he says you are. And here's who he says you are. And this is what we should be repeating to ourselves until it becomes second nature to us. Because many of us, we've heard the negative so long, and it is so ingrained in us that even when someone tries to praise you, you can't receive it. Because it has to go through the filter of all your negative identity crap. Yes, I said crap. Because I would, can't say the other word, so... I want you to understand how debilitating these negative identity speeches in your head are. They make you weak. Because after, particularly like one of the things that Christians constantly say that I just want to slap them up the side of the head in Jesus' name for is, I'm just a sinner. No, you're not. If you're just a sinner, then you're not saved. If you are saved, you are no longer just a sinner. You are, according to 1 Peter 2.9, which is the Word of God, which you can accept as truth, you are a chosen person. So look at yourself right now. Let's get a mirror up here, you know. And say, I am a chosen person. Okay, and now, here's the easy part. I bet you if I tell you, look at each other. Okay, turn to somebody beside you. Now, some of you are saying, he, this one can't be chosen. <laughs> what team was this? I, how many of you ever, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you ever were the last ones chosen and you were given away with two more people or something at the sports never? You were always the first ones chosen? Yeah, I hate you. You know, there's, there's something about this idea of being chosen, when you're, particularly when you're a kid and you're the last one chosen. Or you're chosen and, and the, you know, they say, okay, and you can have so-and-so because you're going to hurt the team or whatever. <laughs> and this is a really difficult... That, 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 one of the most powerful things that, whether you know it or not, one of the most powerful influences on your life is rejection. Even if all you did was numb yourself, you hurt yourself. So here is what the God of the universe, who is the value giver, who is glorious and beautiful, and who will live forever, who has been forever and will go on forever, he has said, I choose you. And he didn't say, I choose you because there's no one else. He says, I choose you because I love you. Okay, so can you look at that person next to you and just say, he chose you. See how easy that is? 
except for Glenn. See, even this is uncomfortable, isn't it? Which, listen to me, that means there's damage. If it is uncomfortable for us to receive or say the positive, that means we have damage. And the damage is rejection. And the fear that if this is true, what am I going to do? Because I've lived my whole life out of rejection. I've lived my whole life out of the negative. See, part of what God is doing in restoring the heart so that you can worship is so that you yourself will be lifted up when you worship. We don't worship God as slaves. We worship Him as children. We don't worship God as those who are trying to earn His favor. We worship God because we have His favor. See, I have, over the years, this has become so important. You see, in some ways, if you can't handle criticism, you can't handle praise. And if you can't handle praise, you can't handle criticism. Because either one devastates you. Because it's coming against lies that you've believed your whole life. The first fight I ever had with my wife before we were married is I told her she was pretty and she said she wasn't. And I said, are you calling me a liar? And we just had this huge fight. And it was over. She wanted to hear from me she was pretty, but there was so much defense mechanism there that said... I can't hear this. I can't believe this. I can't let this in. What will happen if it comes in? And in the same way that I would say to her, you are pretty, then if I would say to her, you didn't do this right, she would be devastated by it. Because she was saying, she thought I was saying she wasn't a good person. So she heard she was a terrible person. I just said, you did this one thing. She heard everything about me is wrong. You understand what I'm saying? Because she she couldn't take criticism, she couldn't take praise. And because she couldn't take praise, she couldn't take criticism. You know what? You can't advance without being able to be instructed. You can't grow up. You can't mature. So part of it is, this is for your own good that God is saying. If you can get to a place where you can receive His word, that you are a chosen person, that you are a part of a royal priesthood, that you're a holy nation. If you, can get, if you can grasp hold of that and say, that's my identity. I didn't earn that. It's given to me. It's mine. It belongs to me because the one who gives it to me is faithful. God says you're a chosen person. God says you're a royal priesthood. God says that you're a holy nation. Why would you fight him? You're not more holy than he is. So why would you be the judge? It's like people who say to me sometimes, they go, I, can't, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. I just want to punch them upside the head and then have them forgive me. <laughs> and the reason it makes me so infuriated, I'm sitting there going, little you thinks that you are more holy than big God. Because if he forgives you and he's the only one you've really offended, When David sinned against Uriah and killed him and took his wife Bathsheba, David understood, and in the psalm where he repents, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. I'm sitting there going, Uriah didn't feel too good about that. I'm not sure Bathsheba felt all that great about this situation, but David gets it, you understand? If God is offended and he forgives then how can you stay offended? And when he calls you holy, 
because you're in Him, then how can you resist Him? See, in some ways, you will never have Jesus as the focus of your worship until you realize what He has done for you. You're not the same if Christ is in you. You're not the same if the Holy Spirit indwells you. I mean, you can keep believing the lie about your identity. You can keep believing the lie about your purpose. But you'll never be happy there. You'll never be satisfied. Because within you now is a deep longing to praise God. A deep longing. Because your spirit is now alive with His spirit who's one with Jesus, the worship leader, and right now Jesus is singing and Jesus is preaching. And within you, whether you know it or not, and you can fight it and you can believe the lie, you weren't made for this, but you were made for this. And when your life begins to get in alignment with your identity and your identity becomes real to you and genuine experience in your life, then you will praise Him. Because you are not who you were. See, there's so many people that are religious. And see, religious people respect God, but they don't know God. They fear Him, but they don't know Him. And one of the issues that so many religious people have is they are afraid of the consequences of sin, but they don't actually understand the depth of what their sin does to them. It destroys them as a person. It keeps them from their true destiny and potential. Sin is much more damaging to you than it is to God. God is actually not damaged by your sin. He continues in the bliss and the joy and the perfection of heaven while you live in the hell of the consequences of your sin. You've got to begin at this place of saying, you know what, the place where I start is I begin to worship God out of who I now am, not who I was. And I began to give value because I'm not the same person. Well, in this passage of Scripture that I read, we read together, it's very interesting because Hebrews is, is very unique among all the New Testament books. This happens in the Old Testament a lot, but the, the Old Testament had, has numerous books that are not signed by anybody, so we don't know exactly who wrote them. In the New Testament, almost everything you see, this is a letter of Paul, this is a letter of Peter, this is a letter of John. You know, this is, the Gospels are all signed, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all, there's a signature behind them. There's, but Hebrews is the only New Testament book that really has no, no writer saying, I wrote this. People for years said Paul wrote it, but Paul always signed his letters. I, I, I guarantee you that there is a Pauline influence here, but this is not Paul. Uh, my best guess, I spent years studying this thing, my best guess is just nothing more than a guess. And so when you look at this, this book, it's, it's a very unique book, so we don't know who wrote it. But we know the, the people who were the objects of this letter, who were the recipients of this letter. They were, they were clearly people who lived in cities. They were either in or around. They were urbanites or very close, you know, kind of to a city center. And one of the things that was very clearly true in their days is that the cities that they lived in were very pluralistic. 
In other words, there were cities that worshipped many gods and who had many different ethnicities and who had many, um, you know, many very many strongholds in these cities. And so, to become a Christian actually was to become marginalized and to put yourself in danger. Because if you were a Christian, you were saying that all those other gods were not gods and that only the God revealed by the Lord Jesus Christ was truly God. And so they were beginning to be persecuted and suffered. And some who had come to the church and some who had come to Christ had actually fallen away in the persecution and had run away. And this letter is written primarily to those who had remained faithful throughout the persecution and suffering. And so I, I have it written up here, but one of the questions that the writer is choosing to answer is if God is so committed to our life and to our joy, why is our life so hard? That's a good question, and it kind of fits because you and I live in a very, very close to a very big city. It's incredibly pluralistic. There is some downside to being a Christian in this area. And so there, there's a very real sense in which um, we are living in a time that's not unlike the days of the Hebrews. We are not persecuted yet. But there is some downside and some marginalization. If you say to people, I am a born-again Christian, they will immediately write you off as some kind of you know, right-wing crazy lunatic. And so even the way you phrase what you phrase about your faith now has to be very carefully crafted so that you can actually stay in the conversation with people. Or they will immediately pigeonhole you and categorize you in a way that it does not necessarily fit who you are or what you believe. And then the other aspect is, I believe that this is probably, this area is one of the most difficult areas to live in terms of, of uh, the pace of life. I've never, I feel like you get on it, when you come here, you get on a treadmill that you can't get off. I wish it were a moving sidewalk, but it's a treadmill. And, uh, you know, it's constantly going and it's speeding up on you. And even when you feel like you're making more time, things fill those gaps. The sense that many of us have of how do I make it financially here is very, very difficult. Many of you have either at times worked two jobs or worked overtime or all kinds of extra time just to be able to pay to have a mortgage and all of these things. So there's a sense in which the questions that are asked by the Hebrews fit us. In a sense, this question could be one that you ask. If God is so committed to my life and to my joy, why is my life so hard? And if you're not asking that question, you will find people and you will be ministering to people or praying with people that that is the question they ask. If, if God is so committed to me, why is life so hard? Why do I have these physical difficulties? financial relationship difficulties. It's an important question to ask, and the book of Hebrews answers this question. And the way it answers it, this is Tim Keller's summary, and I like this. He says, life is a journey. It's a journey from weariness to rest, from alienation into the presence of God, from being strangers into citizens of the city of God. And and the writer of Hebrews basically says this, and this this is his main theme throughout. If you want to know the joy that is yours to know, if you want to know satisfaction, and this is where worship comes in, and he says, 
fixing your eyes on Jesus. This is what will get you on. Now, I, I found this very difficult for many years because I, I kept asking this question, why is life so hard for me? Not just for the people around me, but why is it so hard for me? Why so many failures? Why so many burnouts? Why so many things? And one of the things that I began to realize as I, as I bring to you this idea from Hebrews is that my eyes were not fixed on Jesus in worship. My eyes were fixed on my problems, and I'd asked Jesus to be my personal assistant to take care of those problems. I, I, I think what I did is I was the senior pastor, and Jesus was supposed to be the executive pastor. He was supposed to be my administrative assistant. His job was to keep all problems from me. His job was to solve all problems for me. His, pro- his job was to come alongside and even to intercept any possible problems. Well, that's not really going to work. One, he's the Lord of the universe. He's not your administrative assistant. And never will he be your personal assistant. You come into a relationship of being his servant. He's not your servant. And so when the writer of Hebrews begins to speak about this, what he's basically saying is that your journey will only find satisfaction when you learn to minister to him and to his presence and worship in his presence. Now, you may not necessarily understand this yet, but if you'll listen to me in this, you can do all manner of things for God and hide your heart. Like, you, you could go witness to other people. There are mean-spirited people who witness. They stand on corners with signs and say, turn or burn kind of thing. There's all kinds of people with evil in their hearts, unloving, judgmental, who can in their own mind, justify their lives by saying, I'm out there every day witnessing. Because when you do things that you think are for God, you can hide the heart that's broken and the heart that's damaged. There are people who preach and who teach. There are people who who do all kinds of ministry in churches. I've seen people who were devoted to the flower ministry of the church. And every Sunday, there was this beautiful arrangement of flowers. Now, there was no Holy Spirit there, but there was a lovely bouquet of flowers there because they were devoted to that. See, because when you do, you can hide your heart. There are people who set up all kinds of rules and conditions. You say, okay, you can only listen to this kind of music. You can only eat this kind of food, drink this kind of beverage. You can only wear these kind of clothes and all this kind of stuff. Because, see, if you externalize this whole thing, you can hide your heart. But worship reveals the heart. Worship exposes the heart. There was a guy one time in our church, as we made a switch, and he was a good guy, but we made a switch from hymns to choruses. Okay, this was the worship wars of 1980s. Uh, so we made a switch from hymns to choruses. We made a switch from organ to guitars and all this kind of stuff. And this guy was my age, and he came to me, and he said to me this. Now listen carefully to this. He said, when we sing those songs, and especially when we repeat the verses over and over again, he says, that is like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. 
So I said, you have a demon. That the hymns did not reveal. Because they were religious enough for you. But when you have to sing, I love you, Lord. And I lift up my voice to you. And when you have to open up and raise your hands, because everybody around you is starting to raise their hands, and you're sitting there going, you're not going to get me to raise my hands. See, your heart is revealed in that. Your heart is revealed that you're not connected. You're not connected to Jesus who's leading the worship. You know what Jesus is doing? He dances. He raises his hands. He lifts his hands up to the Father because he's utterly obsessed with his Father. And he gets everybody up there. Everybody's going for it, full out. Some are on their faces. You look in Revelation, it shows. Some are falling on their faces saying, how long, O Lord, until you make you know, the earth your footstool? How long until everything is made right? It's all out. Matter of fact, next week you may not want to come because next week is when Jesus is your obsession. Because that's what this is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. You see, what happens in worship, it reveals our heart, it exposes our lack of relationship, it exposes our lack of connection. Now, now I don't want you to run away from this, but I just want you to understand the truth of it. The reason why the purpose for your new identity is to sing praises is because your heart has to be connected to the one who's already singing those praises. And when you start to minister to Jesus and you minister to who he is for who he is, it changes everything about the journey. And instead of it being fixated on your mortgage or fixated on your rent or fixated on your problems, you are seeing there's something more going on right now than what you're seeing. (laughs) Last week I turned 56. For some reason, 56 felt a lot older than 55. I don't know why. (laughs) But I can tell you this. After 56 years of following Jesus, every bill's been paid. Every car note, every electric, I mean, everything that I've ever asked for, he has given. One, once in my life, I, I was so angry with the Lord because I felt like none of my prayers were being answered, and I, I spent some time, I wrote out 35 things I wanted him to do for me. I called them my 35 demands, you know, and, and I fasted and I prayed, and after a year of fasting and praying, I got none of them. So I, I thought I threw the card away. I was cleaning out some years ago. I was cleaning out and found the card. I guess I... You know, either the Lord restored it mag- magically or, uh, or I didn't throw it away, but I found it. And on, out of all those 35, I looked and every single one of them he has given me. And he's given me abundantly more. But he wouldn't do it because they were demands. He would do it because there's a relationship. Because there's a connection. See, he's the vine. I'm the branches. I'm the branch. And, and so his life flows through me and there's nothing he's holding back from me. But until you get to that place where you say, my eyes are fixed on Jesus. Now, why should I do that? It's because of what he brings to us. If I could just hit this with you a little bit. Chapter 1, verse 2, it says, God speaks to us through his son. Now, 
This is one of the, the reasons why I give all of my worship to God and I give it all to His Son, the Lord Jesus, because we, God has revealed Himself to be a God who wants to communicate with us. And in His desire to communicate to us, what He's done is He said, here is my Son who is my final word to you. He's a God who wants a relationship with you, but He's a God who gives you His final word through Jesus. Now, before Jesus... He spoke in various ways. He would speak through, through uh, manifestations like the burning bush. He would speak through prophets. He would speak through all of these things. But all of these things, the writer of Hebrews says, these were just pieces, and Jesus is the fullness. You know, from the writing of the book of Hebrews to the end of time, there will be no fuller expression of God or God's word to us than Jesus. This is, the writer says it really plainly, says this is the way it is, and that's, that's it. Now, in a sense, if you think about it, all personal relationships act in this way. There are finalities about relationships. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, married, when I got married to Lisa, I, was, I, I wasn't thinking about the finalities. I thought everything was negotiable. You know, so I thought if I, if I was persuasive enough, not only could I do the wrong thing, but convince her it was right. You know, and so I remember suddenly I'm married to a woman who contradicts me. That was not what I thought I'd signed up for. I, were, uh, I married a woman who crossed my will, that her desires were not my desires. Now, over the years, some of the things that, that we contradicted each other on or we crossed wills, we've negotiated and we've found some, some common ground. But if you're really in an intimate relationship with somebody, you find out with them that there are certain things they do not negotiate. That there are certain things that are just going to be true and they're always going to be true. Now this, this might be kind of strange to you because my wife is such a sweet woman in so many ways, but my wife is not big on encouragement. That's not one of her strengths. It's not one of her gifts. And so I'm this guy who, like, is a sponge for encouragement. And so I would, you know, I'm sitting there at her feet, you know, after I do something and go, was that good? And she's like, well, I didn't tell you it was bad, you know, kind of a thing. And I'm, I'm sitting there going, that's not what I want to hear. Or I'll sit out, you know, like a puppy, and I'm sitting there going, did I, you know, I put that dish in the dishwasher. Did you notice, you know, did you alert CNN? And, uh, and, and, and she looks at me and says, you did good. And I'm like, could you elaborate on that for a little while? You know, because there are some of you, and, and you'll know, hopefully you know who you are, you just, you gush over people. Like, you, even if it's just good, you're like, oh, that was so great. Well, where are you? I want to talk to you after this service. You understand? There are others of you that are more like, they're more like my wife where she'll get a little bit better. She'll tell me I did something well, but she's not going to spend 30 minutes telling me how great I am. She's going to tell me it was good. She's going to move on to the next task because that's who she is. And if I try to make her somebody she's not, I'm not ever going to have an intimate relationship with her because I'm mad at her because she's not who I want her to be. Am I, am I, is it, are you figuring, are you with me? So in any personal relationship where there's going to be intimacy, there are these things that I would call finalities. 
Okay, you can negotiate a lot of things, but these finalities, and here is God's finality. You want to relate to God, you have to relate through Jesus. This is non-negotiable. This is what the Scripture is saying. You can say to me, I can worship God in nature. Baloney. You're worshiping something, but it's not God. It is only when you are worshiping God through Jesus that you are worshiping God. You're having a nice walk in nature, and maybe you're appreciating God in a sense, but it's not the worship that touches God. If you ever, in a sense, what we're talking about is prescribed worship. God, who is the object of our worship, tells you how to worship him. Now, listen, women, this is pretty much the way it needs to be with you and men. That if you want to have a relationship with man you, and intimacy with the man, you basically have to tell him how to do it because he has no clue. And then you have to not count it against him because he's clueless. And because you had to tell him. You see, if you, the, the, the thing in personal relationships apply very heavily in our relationship with God in that he is describing for us the worship that connects to him. When someone says to me, I can worship God just fine out in nature, they're saying, I will prescribe how I will worship God. Well, that's not worship. Because all that, all that is is I want a certain feeling or I want a certain set of, you know, of uh, guidelines that I agree with. You see, in a sense, what that person is saying is I want a God who will not contradict me. But you cannot come into an intimate relationship with another person who has a will of their own and not have them contradict you. And when God contradicts you, you've got to align with God. And you've got to step into this, this relationship with him where his finalities matter to you. Uh, Tim Keller talks about this in a way. He says, if any of you have ever seen the Stepford Wives, uh, I've seen, actually seen the old one and the new one, but there's this, this town in Connecticut where the men have had enough of the women contradicting them and having their own will, and so they put a microchip into the brains of the women, and the women become nothing but compliant, perfect wives, just everything the man says or does, they just, oh, they smile, and they say, that's wonderful, dear. But as you watch this movie or you read the book, you realize they, don't, they no longer have wives, they have appliances. That you cannot have an intimate relationship with your appliance. You know, when something no longer contradicts you, when something no longer challenges you, you no longer have intimacy, you have an appliance. And some of you have even, you know, because of the conflict in your life and difficulties, some of you have really succumbed to not having any relationships because you'd rather not have a relationship than have conflict. And there's a very real sense in which you are never truly fulfilled in relationship until you've gotten past the conflict and worked through the alignment issues and you get to a place of oneness. Like people can be married for 50 years and just live parallel lives and basically just be a corporation. It's not incredibly satisfying, but it does avoid conflict. 
God will not allow that to happen. He will cross your will. He will contradict you. He will push you until you get to the place where either you decide you will worship him or you will run from him one way or another. Because, and then when you run from him, he'll still chase you because he is so committed to you. He's, he's the one that has said to you, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. So even when you choose not to worship and you choose to run and you say, I will not be intimate with you, you cross my will, you contradict me, you challenge me. You criticize me. You say things about me I don't, you know, I don't want, I don't want to deal with. And you keep running. He'll keep running after you. Because he doesn't stop. He never stops. He wants intimacy with you. If you don't understand this by this time, look at this. The God who is holy has pursued us down through the ages. He's chased us with prophets. He's chased us with burning bushes, with clouds. He's chased us with everything that there is to chase us with, and now he has given his own son, he will not give up on you. He has so invested in loving you that even if you don't love him, he still will chase you. And he will still pursue you. Now, I need to finish this up. You know, some of the people I meet around here, particularly in the city, it's interesting. A lot of people say, I believe in God. And they'll say, I believe in a God of love. I accept some things in the Bible, but not all things. You know, in a way, I just want you to, I want you to realize they're, they're, what they're trying to do is give God a microchip like a separate wife. And he's not going to receive that. You know, you need a God who offends you. You need a God who challenges you. You need a God who has finalities. Now, the last thing that I want to share with you is this, this aspect that Jesus is God's finality. He says in the, in the first chapter, it says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, we, in the Bible, we, we've seen this radiance before. Okay, And when they left Egypt, when the children of Israel left Egypt, there was this glory cloud that chased that led them by day, and then at night it turned into a pillar of fire. Still cloud-like, but a pillar of fire. And so this thing led them to the promised land. And then in Solomon's day, it was this same fire, the same cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud that came and, and filled the temple like never before. And there was the, a visible, tangible manifestation of the glory of God. So this glory, this radiance of glory is something that, that has been familiar because God has been showing it. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is the radiance of his glory. That, that, in, in, that you know, <laughs> it's so powerful. If you think about it, it's saying Jesus is his beauty, his brilliance, his infinite importance, nothing greater than the form he appears in in Jesus. This is the ultimate way that God has appeared. Nothing greater than this. In 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16, 17, 18, it says, When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What he's saying here, and that, this is where I'm trying to get an ending. What he's saying here is this. When you come to the Lord, takes off the veil, 
so you actually see the glory of God. And then you begin by being in his presence, not his omnipresence, but his manifest presence. By being in his presence, you begin to reflect that glory. So what he's, what he, what he's saying is that even, even if you think about it, if you spend time, if you've ever spent time with a person who's better than you, or you spend time with a person you love and has qualities that you want, just spending time with that person, you begin to gain those qualities. You begin to become like that person just by being with them. There are, are people now, because I'm in leadership positions, that they spend time with me. I hear them say what I say. There are some people that I have, Jim Rudd, who was our assistant pastor, he puts quotes of mine from years ago on Facebook, and I'm sitting there going, did I really say that? And, uh, but just by being with a person, you start to incorporate their characteristics, their qualities. See, when you worship, the veil is lifted, and you begin to spend time with Jesus, and instead of being you, you start being him. And then you become the you you always wanted to be. Because he doesn't take you over. He empowers you to be the person you were always meant to be and the person you always wanted to be. The reason that we spend time together here in worship and, and, and actually the, top, the reason why I, I don't give up and just give you little bitty sermonettes and all like that is because I want you with me to spend so much time with Jesus that when you leave here, you go, we have met the glory of God. And your heart is revealed and your heart is exposed. And you say, these are the broken places in my life. These are the gaps in my life. These are the places where that don't fit in the glory of God. And you begin to be honest about that. And you begin to deal with your stuff. And you begin to realize, I can be honest with Jesus because he already knows me. But by being honest with him, then I can be transformed by him. It's not information, it's transformation. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing, and I, I've watched this so closely, is that there are a lot of people who are really, really not liars, but they're not honest. Like, they don't tell lies, but they don't tell the truth either. And then there are people who tell lies, but they're incredibly honest. Okay? I don't know which one you are. Well, some of you I know. But see, in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to have that glory and to live in that worship radiance, is you, you can't be a liar and you can't be dishonest. You can't hold back and you can't hide, but you also can't lie about, oh, I, I'm not doing this anymore, I'm not doing that anymore. It's always interesting to me. In the presence of God, you have to be naked, raw, genuine. Because... Otherwise, you're just faking it. You're just, just faking it. So I'm going to ask you today, just if you'd pray with me and we could be honest together. And your heart could be honest before God. And you say to the Lord with me, you're the object of my worship. And then you be honest about whether or not you're willing to adjust to him. You're willing to lay down your contradictions. You're willing to lay down your restrictions and your resistance. One writer said that until you receive Jesus as the one worthy of your worship, you live in a misty kind of in-between world. 
You know, where if you just have Jesus as this good person or good teacher, and you don't have him as the one worthy of being the one who says, Lord, that you say to him, Lord, command me and I'll do it. Where your heart is already predisposed to say yes. So I ask today, can you be both honest and truthful? And allow your heart to be exposed. Am I a worshiper? Am I one who has that finality that says Jesus is the final word from God for me? He's my word from God. Now God has wanted a relationship with you your whole life. He's been pursuing you. He won't ever stop pursuing you. He's invested prophets and signs and wonders, and he's invested all manner of miracles and all kinds of things. But more than anything else, he has invested in this final word. He wanted to be able to speak to you face to face, voice to voice, and he sent his own son in human form. He pursues you. He chooses you. Do you choose him? Can we just pray this together? If you choose into this, would you pray this to me? Lord, I choose you. Can you say it again? Lord, I choose you. You're the one worthy of my worship. You're the final word from the Father. You give me my identity, and you give me my purpose. And my desire from this day forward is to be in your manifest presence and to sing your praises and to hear your voice. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can you stand together and would you give each other a hug and then get out of here?